What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great guest for you today with Jason Jenks. He's a features writer for The Athletic. In this episode, I chat with Jason about his approach to writing features, his notable feature on Kawhi Leonard, where Kawhi famously said, Boardman gets paid back at San Diego State as well as his sports media career covering the Seattle Seahawks and his advice for young journalists breaking into the industry. The Wii Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to episode 93 with Jason Jenks on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, if you are an athletic subscriber, if you like feature writing, I'm sure you've come across Jason Jenks. He is a features writer for The Athletic based in Seattle. He also covered the Seattle Seahawks for a few years for the Seattle Times before that. And he's here today on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Jason, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Anytime, and 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 you know we'll, we'll get into various uh, you know parts of your career in just a bit, but obviously you know 2020 has been such a crazy, unprecedented year. I'm just curious how it's been for for you and your work, especially for someone that's a features writer. Yeah, it's definitely been unusual. I guess the one, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that's been an advantage because it's been really hard. I think for everyone trying to figure out what to do and how to do it, but. I did a lot of uh, the last like year or so before the pandemic, I did a lot of stuff by phone ideas uh, that I could do that I maybe wouldn't have access to an athlete or, or a coach or what have you. And so I, I kind of already had to sort of try to get creative to do work around stuff. So in that sense, and I guess it kind of prepared me for the pandemic. But yeah, it's been it's been really hard. It's it's not fun to not be able to, you know, go sit face to face with someone or uh, spend some time with them. Just kind of that. I, I miss that human interaction that you get from talking with people. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a common theme of, of a lot of my guests on the podcast who are in sports media, missing that human interaction. And I feel like, especially for features too, I mean, obviously beat writers, you know, it definitely impacts them not being able to talk to players, coaches face to face, but feature writers, like to set the scene they like to be at a certain place and really set the scene for readers and not being able to do that i'm sure has impacted your ability to storytell as well absolutely absolutely i mean one of my one of the well not one of my last the last story i did uh kind of before the pandemic that had face-to-face contact was with washington state's basketball coach uh and and whose son has pretty severe autism and and i got to spend a day with him going to the washington state basketball offices i went over to his house at like 5 30 in the morning because he watched his curb your enthusiasm uh on monday mornings after it comes out because that's kind of his alone time i got to spend time with his wife i was at practice i mean it was just it was really nice to be able to like get a very small slice of his life and sort of convey that to the readers what that was like and that's the kind of stuff i really enjoy doing and yeah that so i mean that you know that was in that was right when the pandemic was just starting to like make real big headline news i mean seattle obviously was mm-hmm. one of the first uh places to kind of be hit and i remember i was over there when 
you know, someone was first reported having it and being like, huh, okay, that's, uh, I don't really know what to make of this. We've never been through something like this before. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it really does limit your ability to, to set a scene or simply just to see how someone acts in a situation. I mean, one of my favorite things to try to do, uh, even though I'm kind of a rambler and a talker, is to try to shut up and sit back and just observe someone and see what they're like, uh, because I think that's oftentimes what translates best for the, the reader. Well, you can ramble all all day, Jason, in this podcast because we want to hear from you and about uh, you know your your journey and career. But I gotta ask, in following up with that, in terms of writing features now, sort of in the you know the COVID nineteen world, the protocols and social distancing and whatnot, and I feel like for you know what makes it so unique is that this is something that you know mostly has affected everyone. I mean, like there's very few people I'm sure on Earth who have not been affected by COVID-19 or just the, the ramifications of the pandemic, do you think it makes it easier then for you to then maybe break the ice with an interview subject knowing that, hey, like, you know, we, we're going through the same thing and it's just something that we can relate to? I actually, to be honest, think it makes it a little bit harder mm. for bigger features, I guess, because mm. you don't have that ability to, like, I mean you know, you and I are talking right now over video and, and, you know, that's better than nothing, but there's just like, it'd be totally different if we were able to, for instance, like sit down over coffee or mm -hmm. beer or whatever and, and talk. And so like not having that ability to do that in person, uh, I think is really, really hard. I mean, the type of stuff that I really enjoy doing oftentimes involves getting someone to kind of trust you, mm -hmm. which oftentimes involves explaining to them really what, what you want to try to do with the story, why it interests you. And I think those are things that you can do on the phone, of course, but I just think there's a whole different level of, of connection when you're able to kind of like, someone's able to see who you are and hear your voice and see your face and you're able to do the same thing. So in that sense, it's been, it's been a lot harder and it's, uh, it's definitely like limited what I've been able to do. But like I said, I think you just have to try to kind of get creative and, uh, and make the best with what we have, which is what all of us are trying to do right now, I guess. No, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I wish I was in a studio right now that was soundproof and, you know, sitting across from you face to face, because as much as these conversations can provide a lot of good information, I think, you know, having that human to human interaction is important because it's still a barrier. I mean, I'm still speaking to a webcam, a screen. It's not like I'm speaking yeah. to someone face to face, but what would you say has been one of the ways that you've been able to be creative and how have you been able to sort of adjust to, you know, a lot of these barriers that the COVID-19 has presented us? You know, it's been really hard. Like I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's not something I feel like I've done a particularly great job at. I think it's, uh, you know, it's been challenging sometimes to feel like, you know, what am I doing? Like, is this hmm. really worth doing or, uh, just to kind of like feel, I think, down about the whole thing, like probably a lot of people have in the day to day lives. And so I really struggle with it. I, I don't really have like think I've done a particularly great job at it. But I don't know, I just I try to do the same thing that I did beforehand, which is like, find something that interests me some kind of like spark uh, that sort of gets me excited, and then just follow that. And so a lot of that's been things that uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to do the kind of story that I mentioned with the Washington state coach where I'm going to be able to spend, you know, eight hours of a day with him or whatever it was. And, 
and really dive into those things. So it's finding things I think maybe that uh, that maybe are a little bit narrower in scope that are something you can do in talking to someone for an hour on the phone or whatever without you know seeing them in person or spending time at their house or whatever it may be. So that's what I've tried to do. But yeah, it hasn't definitely hasn't been easy. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about your career and and you you joined the Athletic in 2018. And of course, I feel like every writer that joins the Athletic has to write that, you know, infamous why I joined the Athletic. But yours I think is the most unique because it's the let because it's a letter to your dad. And I I really found that uh impactful and very different because I think for many of us, like, you know, our, you know, our, you know, parental connections is where sports, love and passion certainly was was birthed from. Can you maybe elaborate on, on how big of an influence your dad was in wanting to pursue a career in sports media? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he uh, I mean, he, he's definitely the person that got me to fall in love with sports in the first place. Uh, <laughs> you know, we big Royals fans. Hate to hate to bring that up. I see all your Blue Jay stuff behind you. Uh, <laughs> Still recovering from 2015. Round third base. Still recovering from 2015. Round third base and score. Yeah. Still recovering. <laughs> it's one of my favorite memories. <laughs> so like that, that, you know, that's something my dad and I have shared. Uh, you know, we're huge KU fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something we've shared. And I didn't really have like a huge interest in doing sports journalism. Uh, I I kind of just fell into it back in high school my mom made me uh sign up for my high school journalism class because i i couldn't figure out what electives to take you know my freshman year of high school and uh the way i remembered at least is i was you know we had like six days to that you could change classes at the start of a school year and i was always intent on getting out of that journalism class but the lines to change classes after school were always long enough that it was you know my laziness kicked in and so i didn't i stuck with it and it was something that I found that once I actually did go out and try to do it, that I really, really enjoyed. And I think more than my dad even inspiring me to become a sports writer, he just, he has a, you know, I, I kind of make fun of him for it, but he, he is constantly interested in other people's lives. You know, we go on, we go on an Uber ride and he's constantly talking to the Uber driver about their life and what they do and all that kind of stuff. And so I think just like through osmosis, that kind of rubbed off on, on me. I, I want to get back to that in just a second, but like, how great was that 2015 ALCS? Like, I mean, I'm, you know, sure you and I, you know, baseball fans, and we've seen a lot, but like, that was so much fun to watch. Like, I, I, I miss that like rivalry and that, oh, yeah. and that hatred, and like those two teams had it in that year. Oh, I hated the Blue Jays that year. <laughs> I hated the Blue Jays that season. That was, I just remember there was the game when. uh David Price was absolutely dealing. Yeah. And and it, I can't remember if it was on Fox or TBS, but whoever it was, the announcers were just going on and on about it. And I was just getting so irrationally upset. Uh, like, you know, I, that kind of fan being like, these announcers hate my team. <laughs> and and so it was just, yeah, it was one of those things that like, you know, as a sports writer, you're, you so often are kind of like impassionate or you try to be and you're unbiased. But, you know, it's really fun every once in a while to be reminded how crazy, exciting, and frustrating and irrational it is to be a sports fan again. Yep. And that, like, 2015 run was my time to just be, like, a crazy, 
belligerent sports fan and it was awesome and i really do miss i miss playoff baseball <laughs> yeah no kidding and like yeah i mean like it was it was so fun i mean for us here i mean the blue jays hadn't been to the playoffs in so long and for me like that was my first experience with a blue jays playoff run and we had the bat flip game and it was this contrast of styles like you had the big home running blue jays team with the powerful offense against the small ball royals small ball won that year but then baseball is like sort of gone the way what the blue jays were all home run or strikeouts so it's so it's it's just interesting to look back on i i just think it was a really fantastic series and andy mccullough who worked at the kansas city star now the athletic he was he said to me on this podcast like that was one of his most favorite series he's ever covered and and it truly was it truly was incredible even to the to the final game six at uh kaufman stadium which i'm still recovering over yeah i i that's like one of those games i was i was in san diego at the time when that game was happening and there was that massive rain delay which was like yeah. a huge question of whether way davis would ever be able to come back and uh I had dinner reservations for like, I thought plenty late that night. Uh, and you know, we couldn't cancel them. And so I'm at the restaurant watching the game on my phone as like, we're in this dark restaurant or whatever. It's, uh, it's just kind of one of those things I'll probably never forget. I want to go back to, you know, you and your dad, cause I think you, you mentioned something that really is impactful. And of course, in that, why you joined the athletic article about, you know, you know, your dad in, in an Uber drive, you know, in an Uber asking the Uber driver about his life. And I just think that's what makes sports so special and, and so impactful. And, and, it, and it's great that you mentioned that because I think those conversations you know, that's, that's the icebreaker, right? I mean, like we can disagree and, you know, have those, you know, banter conversations or disagree about like real life things like politics and whatnot. But like when you're first meeting someone, like that's sort of the first thing you go to is sports and, you know, their experience with sports. And I think, I think that, you know, and, and certainly with your relationship with your dad, it just is, it's just so important to, to keep, telling those stories and, and asking and it certainly it feels like from your experience like asking those questions and having that natural curiosity certainly put you on that path to, to, to where you are today yeah i mean i think that like that's probably the number one thing that i always try to like impress on anyone who asks you know my lousy opinion for you know sports writing advice or career advice is just simply to find what your natural curiosities are the things that interest and inspire you and then just follow them and so for me you know it's it's been like two parts for me one i love i love history and and i love learning about why people are the way they are and so those are kind of like the two things that i sort of come back to again and again in stories and and really try to pursue because those are the things that like that get me excited and so you know for some people it's it's analytics deep dives for some people it's breaking news and there's no right or wrong to any of those things but i just think having that natural curiosity is going to lead you to finding the kind of stuff uh that other people are going to relate to so you mentioned in this article that you get your first assignment from the kansas city star as a quote floppy hair junior did you remember anything about that experience and what was that what was that like for you yeah i was would have been i think i was a junior in high school at the time mm. uh and i didn't have my driver's license so my dad drove me i was embarrassed i had him drop me off like <laughs> kind of far away from the stadium so i could you know 
walk in on my own or whatever but it was and i th and they didn't they didn't have me write for the actual paper I, it was you know it's kind of like a test run uh, mm. because you know i screwed up and i didn't file my story in time they didn't want to be no you know screwed trying to get this in so yeah so i ended up writing this story for the website that night and it was like incredibly thrilling and frustrating and those are still like even looking back you know i've written not so much anymore but i've written a lot of stories on deadline and there is nothing like more stressful than covering a high school game on deadline when you don't have internet and you're trying to like find a mcdonald's or an ihop or something to like be able to send your story in the right amount of time and add up the stats and do all this kind of stuff and i just remember like feeling so invigorated by that and when you finished your story and you sent it in it felt so awesome and i remember not that first time but maybe the second or third time they you know ran three inches of my story <laughs> in the paper you know seeing like my name in there and like my words in there was just something that i'll you know i'll never kind of forget that feeling of how exciting that was do you ever go back and look at your old stuff and cringe just how like i mean i mean because that's sometimes like normal for writers like you know because i'm sure you've evolved since then and and, and have improved but like do you, do you ever like look back and just see like wow like i've come so, so far from like like those first early dates you know what's funny i don't I, I do see some of my old stuff and like I even still have my old hotmail email uh, <laughs> from that I like, had in high school and so every once in a while I'll like stumble across an old story I wrote in high school or something and they're by no means like good or even adequate but I don't for whatever reason I don't cringe with mm. those I kind of see them as like part of the process I'm way more like cringeworthy and hard on uh, like the stuff I write now you okay know, I'm like writing something like I am today like I just I'm like ah, this is like not what I want it to be yet uh, but yeah when I look back on stuff I don't I don't cringe that much even though I've got a lot of like cringe worthy worthy things that I that I have in my archives I'm sure so walk me through then from those early days to then getting to the Seattle Times to become a Seattle Seahawks beat reporter so I worked throughout college at, you know, the student paper for a couple of years. And then I worked for the Associated Press for a semester. And then I worked uh, for a paper in Topeka, Kansas for my last two years in college. And so I was kind of doing stuff throughout. It was, it was sort of like a, you know, like on the job training, I guess. And when, uh, when I got done with my senior year, I was like pretty, uh, I was pretty burnt out. And so I took basically that kind of summer off and didn't really do a whole lot, uh, applied to some places. And like my one, I guess, lesson for everyone is I, I remember that I didn't get a job that I really wanted. And it was in uh, Casper, Wyoming. I didn't get it. I didn't get a job there. I was like the second person for it and I didn't get it. And I was like crushed. And then the very next week, you know, the Seattle Times called and uh, about this opening in their preps department and you know who knows what would have happened but like that turned out to be something that like completely changed my life and at the time I was so down and frustrated and, and beaten up and it just shows you like sometimes you know your disappointments actually turn into a blessing and so I ended up going up there I covered preps for eight months uh, or a year whatever it was right when that started happening it was when the sacramento kings were looking at moving to seattle hmm. and so we had like 
we had lost our Seahawks writer. They had to move another one of our writers over to cover the, the whole King saga. And so they needed me to fill in, fill in on Seahawks stuff during the draft. And I did. And then they let me kind of stay, stay around during like rookie training camp and uh, training camp and all these kind of off season things. And I sort of just was able to, I think by the end of that run, uh, that summer, they offered me, you know, being the backup Seahawks writer and, uh, did that for, I think four years or five years. I want to get to the Seahawks, but I want to, you know, follow up on that point about, you know, the Casper Wyoming job, not working out because I think, look, I mean, the job application process for for young journalists can be a grind and, and, and you know, it, it can be a lot and it can be sometimes dejecting, especially, you know, when a lot of no's come in, but, but here's an example where, you know, who knows how your career could have changed or been impacted if, if that Casper Wyoming job works out. But then, you know, the, this better opportunity comes available with the Seattle Times, a, 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 a nationally recognized paper. So I guess it's just the lesson there is this, you know, one door closes, another door opens. I know it's cliche and writers don't like to use yep. cliches, but it, it really is in, in your case how it, it certainly changed your, your whole career trajectory. Yeah, it's, it's just one, I think it's one of those things that like, it, you know, the the job hunting process is so frustrating. And, you know, I think I remember that summer, I didn't hear anything from anyone for, you know, two months and like was sending out all these applications, doing all this stuff. And it was so frustrating. And, you know, I, I, I think that it's re especially, you know, that was eight years ago or whatever I was doing it. I'm, I'm sure like the job market's even changed a ton since then for people fresh out of college. And so I, my advice would just be it's, it's frustrating it's going to be frustrating but it doesn't mean that it's not going to end up well for you and uh, you know that's something that uh i've always kind of kept in mind was like it just because it doesn't work out the first time doesn't mean it won't work out so you cover the seahawks in a exciting time for the franchise they win a super bowl they go to two legion of boom so a lot of really compelling content in that in, in that team how did those years shape you as a as a journalist to sort of prepare you for the role that you're in now as a features writer yeah, but that was some of the most fun i had those first couple of years uh the team was really good they were all a bunch of young guys uh you know i wasn't too far removed I, you know i think i was 22 or 23 a lot of them were 23 24 25 so we were we were pretty much the same age uh it was really eye-opening like to learn how to work a locker room mm. and um to learn you know i just i when i was in high school i shadowed bob dutton who was the royals beat reporter for the kansas city star and i just always remember the day i shadowed him he told me you got to put away your notebook and just talk to people and talk to them about their interests and their life or whatever mm. Because you don't want them to always think of you as the guy who comes to them asking questions, even if they're not bad questions, just always wanting something. And that's something that I really, really like took to heart. And then when I covered the Seahawks, you know, a lot of what I would do would be semi-unproductive that day, but it'd be talking to people in the locker room and kind of like building a relationship. And it allowed me to do the kind of like in-depth feature stories that, you know, we were talking about earlier in the podcast. And and so that was something that like really helped me kind of establish how to do that kind of thing. But then the other thing it did in sort of a weird way is it, it showed me that while I really enjoyed my time covering the Seahawks, like for me, I didn't want to be a beat writer attached to one team, at least 
not right now. And I wanted to kind of have a, I wanted to be able to bounce around between different teams or even different sports. And so that was something that, you know, really kind of clicked in with me towards the end of my time at the Seattle Times. And uh, was a big reason I, I went to the athletic was because the job they were kind of offering was a, jo- uh, a role in Seattle, be able to kind of write about all these different teams and all these different feature stories. Um, and so it was, a, it was like both a great learning experience for me, but also an experience that kind of showed me maybe what I was really interested in career-wise. So what's your best Marshawn Lynch story and your best Legion of Boom story? Oh, let's see. Um, Marshawn Lynch story that I can tell. Yes. Appropriate. Yes. <laughs> we'll save the rest for the after hours edition of the pot. <laughs> you know, there were, there were so many with him. Uh, but my favorite thing about Marshawn was just like, watching him interact with his teammates on the practice field he was just hilarious my like i've written about this a little bit before but like my favorite thing was like he was the kind of guy that like he would give his keys to his lamborghini like to his younger teammates to like go do stuff and like that's just kind of like who marshawn was he was he was probably the most popular teammate i ever was around i mean as much as like his career in seattle kind of ended in drama I never heard anyone say anything bad about him on the record, off the record, whatever. And that was not always the case by any means. And, but guys just loved him. Defensive players loved him. Offensive players loved him. Everyone respected him. And yeah, so he was, he was a blast. I mean, he was, even though he like didn't talk to us, he was by far and away the most interesting guy I wrote about there. Everyone loved reading about him. Like he was great for business (laughs) as you could say, I guess. Uh, My favorite Legion of Boom story you know, it's it's actually like not a funny one. It's a serious one. They were all three of those guys were all really really banged up before that second Super Bowl against the Patriots, mm. and I just remember watching them out on the field. You know, you, when guys are hurt in the NFL or questionable in the NFL, they always go out. You know, an hour and a half or whatever, two hours before kickoff, and they're on the field with the training staff and they're putting them through all these different drills to kind of test: Are you going to be able to go? And all those guys were out there doing that. And I just remember like having kind of a profound respect for all of them because that had been at that point, three long years of like winning and playoff runs. Uh, They were really, really banged up. I know those guys were like really in pain and they came out and like, you know, came obviously within a yard of being back to back champions. And so that's kind of the thing, like I'll always probably remember about those guys is, you know, to use the cliche, they really did kind of have like, you know, part of the lion. Obviously that Super Bowl, I mean, one of the most memorable of, of the decade in the history of the Super Bowl. I think it's one of the most memorable of all time. And obviously that last, you know, that one yard play, the Malcolm Butler interception is certainly the exclamation point. But I know the narrative here in Canada was like, I remember afterwards and then even years after was like that play led to sort of the fracture of the locker room and, 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 and what what happened afterwards. Is there truth to that from, from your experience? Okay. Yeah, definitely. I mean, guys on that team will say that play was kind of the, that was truly the beginning of the end. Mm. Uh, You know, it's been pretty like well-reported at this point. Uh, But, you know, I've had many conversations with guys who just say, you know, it led to it led to kind of an offense versus defense fracture. It led to 
some of the guys kind of being dis- dis- disillusioned with Pete Carroll. But I will say I have a I do have like a slightly funny story and a very like Please. personal memory about that play is you know it happens and we're just all shell shocked. Yeah. And you know it's, it's a night game. You're kind of you're scrambling. You got to fill the paper the next day. And I go down the stairs to go, you know, to the media availability and this being the Super Bowl, it's, you know, everything's really high security and you got like all these different checkpoints. And I get down there and they're like, well, you can't come through. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you don't have a credential. And I look down in my badge that had been around my neck. The credential part of it had snapped off from like the lanyard. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So I like had to, I, they wouldn't let me in. I had to like try to find people to like let me like into this room it was like a huge and i actually couldn't even go into the locker room like i they ended up letting me through to like the main podium room and but they were like you can't leave here because we like cleared you through here but you don't have a credential to go in the lot it was a mess and so that was like that was not not the most like fun experience but it's something i'll kind of always remember uh and i uh, you know i was there when russell wilson was you know kind of going going through what happened and I, I can't say that i by any means thought like that was the end of their dynasty but i just remember that being a totally surreal feeling yeah i mean i i covered super bowl 54 for a, a canadian media outlet here and it was the patriots and the rams which you know one of the one of the you know the, the opposite of that of super bowl 49 a complete snooze fest <laughs> of, of a game but like i I remember afterwards, like the chaos, like going down, like to the post game media availability, and just like these reporters, like flashing credentials and security not letting them through, like just just a mess. So I wasn't gonna go here, but but you know this conversation, you know, you know, sparked some questions. Like, do you like covering Super Bowls or the big events? Because I mean, obviously it's so important, but like at the same time, it's very chaotic, and and it's not like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, you know, game or, or a random Sunday afternoon game in the middle of a season. So like professionally, not really because it's really hard to like, you know, get unique interviews or access or, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of like a nightmare from, uh, you know, trying to do unique stuff personally. Yes. They're like a blast to cover. You're like, yeah. And it's, it's like, it's one of my, those are some of my favorite things to cover because you're with all your colleagues and your coworkers and your friends, you know, you work really hard during the day, but then at night you go out and you have dinner and you have a few beers and like, you're just kind of having, it's, it's really like, it's the glamorous part of the, this like job. And so, uh, you know, those two Super Bowls I covered are some of my favorite memories of kind of being in New York and Phoenix for a whole week with my Seattle times coworkers. And, And we went and sang karaoke one night we did, you know, they had the big Super Bowl parties for the media that are really fun. And uh, it's just, it's it's a really unique experience. It's one of those times where you really do just get to kind of appreciate and be grateful for having such a cool job. So you go to The Athletic in 2018. You're now a, a features writer. This is sort of a couple years into The Athletic. I mean, I mean obviously now it, it's certainly entrenched as one of the the top media outlets in, in in North America. So was it considered a risk at that time going to this platform or, or did you think that from what you've seen the platform do already, 
that this was going to be, you know, a really fulfilling opportunity for you? It was definitely a little bit of a risk, but I mean, at this, as you know, like, I don't know what in the media business is like not a risk anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure there's like any place, paper, radio, Very true. TV station that's, that's not like a risk. So that was a big part of it where I was like, well, is it risky? Yeah. But like, is it any really any riskier than anywhere else? Not really. Uh, the biggest thing for me was not so much that like, it wasn't even so much that I was like, oh, the athletic is going to like blow up in this big thing. I just had always wanted to be a part of something that was like kind of building, you know, working at newspapers was great, but at a newspaper, you're always kind of like trying to protect the legacy hmm. and like, you know, plug the dam and all those cliches. And at the athletic, it was like really a chance to kind of define what it was and to really kind of like, you just were sort of given a blank canvas and could kind of do whatever you want. There was real creative freedom with that. So that to me was like the biggest the biggest reason I ended up going there was just like, I, I thought it was be really exciting to kind of be a part of something. If, even if I wasn't on the totally on the ground floor, that was still while it was like pretty new and young. No, absolutely. And like, I think the athletic has just a superstar list of writers right now. Like it's almost like the modern day sports illustrated, what, what, what sports illustrated used to be the athletic currently is now. And, and I'm sure for you, Jason as well, Working in Seattle, a market probably that wasn't, you know, as developed as, let's say, in L.A., New York, Chicago, must have also been a unique opportunity for you, like you said earlier, to not just focus on one team, but now you got all these teams in, in your arsenal to write some really compelling stories. Absolutely, and I mean, so at that point, when I got hired, we only, the only there had been no like, athletic Seattle. There was, mm-hmm. you know, we had Corey Brock. Uh, he'd been hired right before that baseball season in 2018 to cover the Mariners. But that was it. There was no like Seattle editor. There were no, no other writers. So uh, at the time it was just kind of like starting something sort of brand new. And really at that time, the athletic was really big into like cities as their own kind of hubs and, and all that kind of stuff. But that was, that was a big thing for me was having, as you mentioned, like the ability to kind of bounce between all these different teams and different players. Uh, It just was like, even more than just the kind of creative freedom. It's just like beat writers are, are awesome at being able to go into a locker room every day and, and mine for stuff. I got just like a little burnt out on that. And I liked having the ability to one day go to a Mariners game and the next day go to the Seahawks locker room and the next day to like do something completely different. And so that for me, was like one of the biggest draws, I think. And I guess too, you know, you you can build relationships across multi sports across the city and, and and get more. I mean, obviously, when you were with the Seahawks, it's more of a football readership most likely. But now you can get you know the basketball fan, the hockey fan soon with the Seattle Kraken or or other sports as well. So you're definitely getting more of a balanced approach from Seattle uh, readers. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That's that's the biggest thing was just the ability to to kind of like I said earlier you know it's it's having it's trusting kind of what your own curiosities are and following them and so that kind of gave me a bigger avenue to to try to do some of that so I want to dig deeper into your piece on Kawhi Leonard it was one of the athletics best of 2019 a lot of my listeners are Raptors friends fans being from Canada even though Kawhi left I mean he still holds a dear you know dear to our hearts as Raptors fans given what he did last year in the play or two years ago in the playoffs. 
The Boardman Gets Paid, an oral history of Kawhi Leonard's college days. How did this idea come about, Jason, to, to write a story about this enigma of a player known as Kawhi Leonard? So it actually started earlier that year. I had pitched for the Athletic to go down to Phoenix to, and Tucson uh, to spend a day with Bill Walton and Dave Pash when they broadcast a basketball game and write a story about what that experience was like. And so the athletic said yes, but like I'm I'm very kind of self-conscious when I travel of like making sure that the company feels like they're getting their money's worth. And so I tried to kind of find what other things I could do while I was down in the area. And one of the things I saw was that the Warriors were in town while I was there to play the Suns. And I thought, oh, Clay Thompson, you know, Washington State is kind of in our Seattle area. You know, a lot of Washington State fans are in Seattle. And so I was like, what could I do on Clay, you know, that I'm not going to have a lot of access to him, but I could do. And I thought, I'm going to like call his old college teammates and just kind of see like what stories there are. And so I did that and, and that story like did really well and people seemed to really enjoy it. And so, you know, I did another one on Damian Lillard when he was at college and when I think I was right after Kawhi hit, you know, the infamous shot, the whatever three bounce or six bounce or whatever bounce it is, uh, shot, I was instantly like, oh man, you know, this guy is notoriously like kind of different. <laughs> uh, and he sort of fit into my pattern of a guy that became a star that wasn't a big star in college and kind of went to a smaller-ish school. And so... I basically stole the idea from something I had done before and just decided this is something I can do in a pretty quick amount of time. And it's something I don't need any access to Kawhi or any Raptors players because I wasn't going to get that. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning about like trying to get creative with pandemic stuff. Like that was kind of an example of like trying to do that sometimes when you're just not going to be able to have the access you maybe would like to have. So... It's an oral history, and oral histories have become more more prevalent the last few years. Just as, as a general level, and then maybe using this piece to explain, I mean, what goes into making a good and successful oral history? It's a good question. Uh, like, for me, the, the thing I really try to look for is, like, I want it to be really focused, so I want it to be, like, I want it to be kind of small in scope, I guess. So, like... I don't necessarily want to do an oral history about a whole season, even though I've done that before. Uh, but I prefer it if it's something about like pretty condensed, uh, and so, you know, so about like a, just a guy's college career, like his college days, or you know, I did one on uh, Mike Leach and like his his uh, media quarterback meetings when he was at which or Washington State. Uh, but the biggest thing I think that is really fun, and the reason I like doing those is you really like get a sense for who the person was by listening to the way their teammates talk about them. And what I like to use the oral history format for is like, it's almost like a way for them to talk to each other. So even mm -hmm. though I'm the one like doing all the interviews, when you read it, hopefully like it feels like they're kind of like calling and responding to each other and talking to each other, uh, you know, laughing about the same story or adding on to the same story or, you know, whatever it may be. And to me, like that's something that I, think is just like it's really fun to just hear about those guys being like kind of regular people uh before you know they were mega superstars 
So, I mean, when you speak with, you know, someone like LeBradford Franklin, Coach Hudson, they obviously say, the Kawhi used to say, I'm a board man, board man, board man gets paid. What was their sort of reaction? Because, I mean, I mean, this is a college kid. We don't, we don't obviously know what he's going to become. But if, you know, a college kid saying that, they're like, okay, I mean, that's, you know, cocky, arrogant, you know, what confident, whatever. But I guess now, looking back and, and hearing that, like, it must definitely explain who the type, this type of person really is. Yeah, I mean, when I reached out to people and started talking to them about kind of Kawhi, the boardman thing, like, it was the first thing that sort of jumped out to me that I remember telling my editor about that was like, yeah, like, this is the thing he used to say. And, and it definitely was, like, to me, it was kind of interesting. It was, like, it was quirky. It was funny. But it really did show you, like, who Kawhi was at the time. And it showed you, I think, why he went on to become as good as he is. I mean, if you're, you know, 18, 19 years old and you're thinking, hey, you know, if all I get do is get rebounds, if I'm a great rebounder, like, I can create a career out of that. That's, like, that's a kind of men- unique mentality uh, that's just different. It's, 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 it's simply different. And so... You know, it's part of the reason I kind of love doing those oral histories is like, it's not only a look at their personality and some of the fun stuff. And, you know, those, those things are like always what people really latch onto, but kind of beyond that, there's, you really get a sense for like this idea that greatness is kind of like built in, in, in anonymous situations in the dark when no one is really looking. And I think, you know, the idea that these guys were always had that in them, I think it's really interesting. And, and the other thing is, like, uh, I remember, like, someone had said the board man thing, like, in one of my earlier interviews, and and I had done, like, 10 or 11 by the end of this, and I was kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm kind of done, I've, I've done enough. And there was one more guy, it was it was an assistant coach, whose name I'm blanking on, but he's in the story, and, and I was like, gosh, fine, I, like, I'll just, I'll call him, I'll do one more. And he's the one I think in the story who says like, oh yeah, he always used to say that I'm the board man, the board man gets paid. I'm the board man. And it was like one of those small reminders that it's always worth making the extra call. It's always yeah. worth like doing the little extra, the little extra effort, whatever, almost always pays off. Uh, and so that's something that like, you know, I need reminded of all the time when I start to get lazy. It's like that, that almost always pays off. And, and that was one of those times that it really did for me. I know that you didn't get Kawhi for the story, but hypothetically, if you did get him, do you think it would have added anything, or do you think what you did with the people that you got certainly would have made, you know, it was fine as it is? Um, I think it definitely would have added something. I mean, when I did the one on Clay Thompson, I was able to get him for like 70 seconds or whatever, like in the Warriors locker room. Uh, but like, I was it he added like these one liners to these stories that I heard uh that were almost kind of like punchlines mm. and so that was like because it was clay it was really funny Kawhi would have been a little bit different than that, I think I think he probably would have been a little uh maybe a little weirder I guess yeah. or a little you know his is a little bit different and I think that could have been like kind of interesting too but the reason I like these things is like you just you know, it's great if you can get the person, but they work perfectly fine if you never get the person and you're just talking to these other people. So 
I would have liked to, but I, I didn't even, frankly, I didn't even try because I knew there was like less than a 0% chance that I was going to be able to get on the phone with Kawhi Leonard during, you know, the NBA finals. <laughs> As I said earlier, Seattle is getting a hockey team, the Seattle Kraken, which I think is, you know, really exciting. And, and they've done a lot of really cool things already to, to promote the team. Jason, you know, you, you know, you you seem to know the the Seattle area market fans pretty well. How do you think they're gonna, you know, react to to a new hockey team and and this and this Kraken franchise? Yeah, I, I think the Kraken will be uh, a a big deal in Seattle. I think I think it's been pretty proven that Seattle sports fans support their teams, and especially when they win. You've seen it with you know the Sounders last year sold out. CenturyLink Field or Lumen Field for uh, MLS Cup. The Mariners in 2001 sold out almost every game that during their run. The Seahawks took over the whole city when they were really good. And I think there's a real like excitement uh, and kind of passion building for the hockey team. The one thing I'd be really curious about is like, you know, there's been a slight difference between, um, you know, for instance, the, the Mariners and, and Seahawks kind of are a different genre when it comes to uh, TV ratings and radio ratings and clicks and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the Sounders draw really well crowd-wise, but they're maybe not as uh, big of a meter mover TV radio stuff. So I'll be curious to see where the hockey team fits in, if it's something that people go to and support that way, but maybe don't watch as many games or you know consume as much content or radio talk shows or whatever. That to me will be the, the big most interesting thing, but it will definitely be a big draw here. And if the team's competitive at all in those first couple of years, I think people will really, really get behind it. Last question for you, Jason. And it's something that you alluded to earlier, which I found interesting. And, and that, of course, is you know, you, you talked about burnout as a journalist and then trying to find ideas this year in, in a very challenging year. And I feel like for young journalists getting into the industry, that they're often given, you know, this rose-colored picture of what it's like. You're going to cover great athletes, you're going to cover teams, but don't necessarily get an accurate depiction of how it can be sometimes a strain and a toll on on you personally, mentally, etc. I'm just curious if, if you have any, you know, advice for for young journalists looking to break into the industry to try and. I guess, you know, try to avoid the breakout, but I mean, burnout, but if it does happen, like just, you know, trying to push through and, and find ideas to write about in a, when sometimes it's hard to in a, in a challenging year. I think it goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier with, uh, with like curiosity and your own interest. I think if, if you're doing something that just naturally interests you, I think, there are times it's going to be frustrating and it's going to suck and it's going to, you know, all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, you'll kind of, you'll always find your way back uh, to feeling good and passionate about it. I think where it gets hard for people is when you're doing something that you don't really feel passionate about or that doesn't totally interest you. And, and then it becomes truly like a grind and you're, you know, most people don't make a ton of money in the field and all that kind of stuff. You know, all the cliches are, are pretty much true. So, Again, the thing I just would always tell younger journalists and try to stress is find what you're passionate about. You know, it might be radio, it might be podcasting, it you know, it might be investigative journalism, it might be uh, feature writing, it might be in you know data analytics uh, type stuff, like whatever it may be. Uh, and I think the athletic, the thing that I think is kind of cool is like there are so many different writers that have different interests there. 
you know, I, I love reading Down Goes Brown, even though yeah. I'm, like, not really a huge hockey fan or whatever. But, like, you know, I love what Sean does, and and I think he's super creative, and I think he's found, you know, he's found what what excites him, and you can feel what I like reading about him, even though I don't have a deep hockey history and I don't know a ton about, like, the players or whatever, is I can just feel his passion kind of coming through in what he does. He just loves hockey, and he loves talking about it, and he loves writing about it, and... And so, you know, that's one example of many, but I, I think I think if you're able to find that thing that kind of scratches that itch for you, it it will keep you from falling into kind of all the bad traps that sometimes happen with people. Jason Jenks is a features writer for the Athletic Seattle. Make sure to make sure to check out his work there. Jason, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation on the We Sports Chronicles hey, podcast. Hey, I appreciate it. Have a good one.